Good evening. It's good to be here tonight uh, in this season. I know there's a lot of people traveling. Uh, there may be very many of you have family members here, and we welcome you. And you may be visiting here, and you don't have a family member here, but you're just visiting here to check out this congregation to see what it's about. And we really, really welcome you. And I know a lot of times we say, hey, find one of our elders, find one of the ministers to talk to before you leave. But I realize if you're visiting here, you have no idea who not any of those people are. And so I'm going to encourage you as members, look around and find somebody sitting near you who you don't recognize. Now, they may have been going here for 20 years, uh, like some people I meet sometimes. But I want you to not let them get out of here without being greeted. But we're thankful to have you here tonight uh, with us. And we hope that it will be edifying for you. Uh, beautiful singing that Philip has led has already been edifying to me. And I know that it was a pleasant aroma up to our Lord. I want to take this opportunity, uh, because I'm going to ask for a little indulgence here since I was strong-armed into the pulpit tonight, to thank you for all of your prayers and all of your comments and your inquiries and your support uh, for my wife and my family uh, at this time. I don't really get a chance to get up here and thank you for that and to thank all of you individually would be nearly impossible. Uh, and I want to talk more about that at conclusion to the sermon, but I want to take the time now to thank you uh, for that because you may fall asleep during a sermon and not get the stuff at the end but I want to make application about that and I think the Lord has put this in my life at opportune time but I want to talk about what some of you guys have done that my wife appreciates it very much we had to have a little surgery last night at UMC at 6 o'clock yesterday evening because one of her wounds was not healing right so she's back home resting well and doing pretty good so we do appreciate uh, your continued prayers and we go see the oncologist tomorrow to begin the wonderful trip through chemotherapy that we have for the next 13 months. So I appreciate the prayers of righteous individuals and the Lord has heard them and answered them. Uh, and I appreciate that very much. I just want to take the opportunity to do that. You know from this morning, John Michael's excellent work in uh, working in Philippians. And that's where we're going to be tonight. If you want to turn to the book of Philippians, uh, I believe it starts on page 1042 in your pew Bibles. And uh, we want to look at chapter 4 in particular but I want to kind of go back and build on some of the foundations that David laid a week ago and that John Michael talked about this morning, especially when John Michael talked a lot about unity. Uh, and this book of Philippians is an interesting book, and I think any time we have to read a book of the Bible, if you've ever been, been in a Bible class that I've taught, uh, it's going to be evident very soon that I don't preach regularly, but I wanted to tell you that you have to read the entire book to understand any part of that book. If you go and take things and paragraphs out of a letter that Paul wrote or James wrote or that Moses wrote a book, you'll make mistakes in applying that. And I began to think about Philippians and the idea of joy. And this letter is very different in its tone and I think probably in its goal than some of the other letters that Paul wrote. And I began to think about the audience and as I was reading some commentary on it, I think the point of this book is encouragement. And so tonight, that's what I'm going to talk about. I know sometimes we feel like when we preach uh, or we speak or we teach, the job is to make people feel guilty and, uh, and to bring them to repentance. And, and some of the things that I may say tonight may very well do that. But I want to talk to you more about a golden opportunity there is for you to grow as a Christian. But it's got to be your decision uh, to do that. None of us can do that for you. And we'll talk about that as we get to a conclusion. But in thinking about what Philippians means... I think it's a letter of encouragement. Uh, it does have joy uh, as a topic, and it's awesome that Paul is joyful, 
even though he is in prison and he shares that joy, he gives that encouragement to the audience in Philippi. Uh, we know that Paul has visited Philippi twice on his missionary journeys previously. Most scholars believe this letter was written from him being in prison in Rome. Uh, some have some disagreement with that, but we know he is in prison uh, because he says that in the letter. And there's three things we see Paul hit on in this book is thanks for the gift that the Philippian church sent to him via Epaphroditus. Uh, we see him talk about Epaphroditus' illness. Uh, he wants to explain the significance of his imprisonment, and he wants to strengthen their resolve that he is rejoicing despite the affliction he is in, and he wants them to do the same thing because he knows they will face oppression, affliction, persecution, whether it be now or it be later. And the Holy Spirit gives us these words, and they've been used throughout the centuries that the church of Christ has been in existence to encourage other people. It's so beautiful how God's word is applicable then and it continues to be applicable uh, for the church. But also he addresses the issue of probably some budding disunity in the church. And uh, we've seen a lot of that uh, in maybe the letters to the church in Corinth. We see some of it in the letter to the church in Galatia, in the region of Galatia. But this audience is interesting to me here as I began to think about who is he speaking to. And when we study the Bible, we gotta really try to do things uh, twofold. We have to understand the author and his intent, uh, and at the same time we have that difficult task of trying to understand the Holy Spirit's intent uh, in inspiring that author to write these words down. And we also have to be the ears of the audience and try to understand what the speaker is trying to get across. This letter would have been publicly read before uh, the church in Philippi uh, as a letter from Paul and as the Word of God, and to listen to that with the ears of the audience helps us understand it. Today And I thought about this is an interesting Old Testament, I mean New Testament book that doesn't have any quotes from the Old Testament in it. You know, we think about the book of Galatians or Romans where Paul relies heavily on quoting from the Old Testament. This book has some slight allusions to the Old Testament, but no quotations. I got to thinking about the primary audience was probably Gentile uh, in there. The word apostle is never used in this book. Uh, and it's a very different tone. He's not dealing with Judaizers. He's not dealing with people coming to the church and trying to push the old law on people or to push circumcision on people or to try to make them go back and adhere to those tenets. It's an interesting, in my opinion, very Gentile audience. Now we know there would be Jewish converts in the church uh, in Philippi, but I think it's just interesting that tone that it goes to. There's some familiar verses in uh, Philippians that we may use very often. Sometimes I hear these used out of context uh, and we want to look at some of those just thinking about uh, through some of them tonight. We think about what John Michael's uh, passage concluded with this morning in chapter 2 uh, verses 10 and 11. It says there, we've got to start in 9 really, and it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. It's talking about Christ here. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I always hear those verses used in context of the last and final day of judgment. And that is not the context that they are used in this book. The verbs there are not future tense. They are what's called in Greek the aorist tense, meaning they are continually going on. God has already exalted Jesus Christ. God has already held his name above every other name. And every knee should bow now and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not an end time prediction here. It's actually a barring of a quotation from Isaiah uh, in there and looking at it. 
I think John Michael talked about this morning when people talk about working out their own salvation. That's not talking about working out how you're going to be saved. The Bible doesn't need us to work out our own salvation in being saved. It tells us how we can be saved. But rather, Paul is here talking about how are they going to put it in practice? How are you going to do things to ultimately end up being saved on that day of judgment and being with the sheep? A very familiar passage in chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is not a verse about achievement. Uh, it's not a verse about accomplishment like it's so often used. It's a verse about endurance and about contentment. Because he says just before that, I can be hungry and I can be fed. I can do with and I can do without. And he's talking about the tough journey that he's experienced uh, in spreading of the gospel. And I'm not condemning those that use that uh, for maybe inspiring them to athletic excellence, but that's simply just not the context uh, that the Bible uses. And it kind of takes away from Paul's message. And we talk about in chapter 4, uh, in our verses tonight, we'll talk a little bit about unity and reasonableness and putting those things into practice. For me, the theme in Philippians is one of joy and one of fellowship. There's a Greek word that's used a few times in Philippians, and your translations may be different from mine than I use them, but if you look in chapter 1 uh, and verse 5, and we'll spend a little time flipping back and forth here in Philippians, and I'm trying to get your mindset towards the end goal of this sermon. He uses this Greek word, and it's called koinonia, and it means um, fellowship. And some of your Bibles in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1 may say fellowship. Mine says partnership. And I think as we look at how this word is used by Paul especially, what it would mean. Because we throw that word around a lot in the church. We talk about the fellowship. Or placing your fellowship. Or coming into this fellowship. And it also it becomes almost like a roll sheet. It almost becomes like you're part of this group. And that's not why the Bible uses uh, that word in this action that we're talking about. It's much more intimate than just having your name on the roll sheets or just simply being under the oversight of the elders in Mount Juliet or wherever it is that you may be a, a member of the Lord's church at a congregation. It's so much deeper than that. And it's so evident from reading Philippians. If you haven't read Philippians, I encourage you, spend 15 minutes tonight and read this little brief four chapter letter because you'll see that Paul has a connection, a friendship, an intimacy with the Philippian church that sometimes our Western minds can't even comprehend. It is a familial relationship. It is something that is close uh, in those bonds. And that's what the Lord intends for this congregation and for the entire church for that matter. In chapter two, verse one, thinking about from this morning, a participation in the spirit is the way that word is translated. And in chapter 3, verse 10, it's talked about sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and he's thankful for it. Now, we never do that. So we think about the words partnership. You know, that kind of brings a business mentality to us. Uh, we think about marriage as a partnership. We think about the idea of participation that is active. Uh, and we think about sharing. Sharing means that I give you something, you give me something back. We put things together. And we think about right there when the church was founded in the book of Acts, one of the first things that the early church did was they put all their stuff in one big pot and they used it to take care of everybody's need. They shared. You know, to us Americans, that's just communism, you know. But in the early church, that's what they did. They shared things in that way. And I think about how Paul uses this word elsewhere in his writings. And I'm not going to ask you to turn 
to all these tonight, but if you're taking notes, write these down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul is speaking metaphorically about the cup of blood of the Lord's Supper is a symbolism there and the body that was broken for him. And he talks about that taking of that is participation. The same Greek word that's used here for fellowship. Participation in the blood with the cup and the bread in the body of Christ. That we're participating with Christ. And for us to be in Christ is how we get this joy. That's the theme of this little mini-series here is that it has to be in Christ. And being in Christ is a big word. That little preposition in is a huge word uh, as we think about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, a verse that is, in my opinion, uh, wrongly applied to marriage constantly is talk about do not be unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. There's nothing in 2 Corinthians about marriage at all, but somehow people always say that. And I can see the application of that. But Paul's saying, don't be yoked, don't be connected to someone who is not part of the same fellowship that you are. It doesn't mean you don't have to interact with the world. It doesn't mean you don't have to speak to people in the world. But those of us that may be going in business with somebody or want to get married or going to be close, intimate friends with somebody, those people can't be people that have a different set of values than you do and don't believe in God's word and don't apply God. Because one of these days it'll come back to haunt you. And so Paul says, talking about the Corinthians being the temple of the living God, you can't connect yourself. What partnership does good have with evil? And that same word is used again there. And then we think about a verse maybe you're familiar with from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul is recounting when he went to Jerusalem for the big council that we read about in Acts 15. And he says that Peter and James and John extended the right hand of fellowship to him. They accepted Paul uh, in because, you know, they'd been a little skeptical about Paul before, but they knew about his good work now. And so that idea of, of fellowship, of partnership, that's how Paul felt about the church in Philippi. And he wasn't even part of that congregation on a regular basis. And I think when we're going to look at joy and peace and how we're going to get those things, being intimate with this fellowship of believers has to be part of that equation. It has to be that. And I've learned a very valuable lesson over the past few years uh, in that. And I'll share that with you kind of as we wrap up. Elsewhere in the Bible, this word is translated in at least in ESV fellowship nine different times. It's talked about participation three times uh, called taking part. Uh, this fellowship uh, that we talked about in 2 Corinthians 8 is a contribution for the relief for the saints. That word is used again as taking part in giving to someone else's needs. We see it talked about in a contribution. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, the cheerful giver passage, some of you may be familiar with. That word contribution comes from that. And the idea of share or sharing. He talks about that to Philemon and the Hebrew writer talks about that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, I want to read that real quick. and Think about the idea of unity. And this would approach kind of of what John Michael said this morning. I'm so thankful for him expanding on this because it really reduced what I had to talk about. And you guys will get out of here before too late tonight. And so I'm glad he did that. But in chapter 1, verse 27, he's talking to this church and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 
and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul says we're all in this together. You've got to be one mind. You've got to strive side by side. You're part of the same conflict that I'm part of, that I've told you about before, and that I'm going through right now. So Paul feels that connection with a congregation that we don't think he spent very many months at. And we're together you know, twice a week, I hope, you know, three to four times a week uh, in here and trying to get that as a fellowship together. And I talk mainly to some of you guys who are a whole lot less, uh, uh, have a whole lot less white life experience. Maybe perhaps there's a whole lot of people in this room a whole lot wiser and a whole lot more spiritually mature than I am. But I'm gonna tell you, if you're a little bit younger than I am or maybe you're new, uh, to Christ and new to the church or maybe you're like some of you guys over here and you're finding your way in life and everything there's no substitute for an intimate connection with these people right here those of you that may be younger there's no substitute for the intimate connection with those out here that are older than you and wiser than you because you will benefit from that in Philippians chapter 4 we'll go to our text and kind of camp out in there real quick and finish up here I was asked to, uh, I made a mistake of emailing or texting John Michael and said, hey, what are we going to preach about Sunday? And him and David worked out a plan, and I just had to jump in with it uh, and do it. But it was wonderful to see. He approaches this kind of, he begins kind of concluding this letter at the beginning of chapter 3, but in 4, he has a therefore there. He's talking about imitating him. He's talking about how he gave up the things of this world uh, in chapter 3 that would be counted to him in this world as positive things. He says, I count all those loss for the sake of Christ. And he's talking about those who are going to come and, uh, and walk as enemies of the cross of Christ as we approach this in chapter 3. And he says, but your citizenship's going to be in heaven in chapter 3, verse 20, as we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about transforming this earthly body into a heavenly body. So therefore, he says in 4, verse 1, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So we have a little bit of, of, of trying to correct some maybe disunity uh, in the group. And he says, I need you to help them too. They've labored side by side with you. Help those two get along. And he says, uh, a man named Clement here that they've worked with and the rest of his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And we've talked about this in our Sunday morning class on Revelation. The book of life is not a New Testament idea. It is an Old Testament idea that's brought forth uh, to the New Testament. So it's interesting Paul has a little bit of illusion there. But we know what our name being written in the book of life means. That means ultimately one day we're saved and go to heaven. But we see a command come out here that says rejoice. I'm in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the writings of the time, if you said something twice, it really meant you were trying to hammer it home. It's kind of like when you're correcting your children. You say five, six, seven times something. It means you really want them to do it. Uh, I have a preteen daughter, so I have to say the same thing many, many times uh, over and over again. And I understand it's going to get worse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. There is some disagreement in scholarship about that. Does it mean the Lord is near to coming back? Well, I don't think so because he didn't come back anywhere near these people's lifetimes. May not come back anywhere near ours. 
But that may be better translated to say the Lord is at hand, he is near, he is close by, he is listening, he is available, he knows what's going on with you. And we know from the Bible that Jesus knows what is going on among the members of his body. And I think that's what that means, but I'm kind of a simple-minded person, but I think that means that right there, let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is listening to what you're doing, he's watching what you're doing. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, here comes a familiar verse, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we'll finish up verses eight and nine here in just a second. We're gonna focus in on these kind of commandments that were given to him. And we see in verse four, Paul says, rejoice, be joyful. You know, we talk about rejoicing when a child is born or when a, a person is born into Christ by being baptized, times of excitement in our life, perhaps a marriage. Uh, we were talking, I think, the other day in an elders ministers meeting about the passing of a saint that goes on to be with God in heaven, that we should rejoice at that. We mourn because we miss somebody that we've lost, but they've gone on to a much better place and we rejoice in the idea that God has given that gift to us that you can leave this world and go on to a place that is beyond human words to describe. I saw an interesting comment by David Garland who has written an excellent commentary on Philippians. And he says about this verse, since joy is commanded, it is not a feeling like happiness. It is a mental attitude, a life stance. Whereas happiness depends on what happens. Joy does not. Joy derives from a conviction that despite present circumstances, God is in control and will save those who belong to Christ. Joy derives from the Philippians' union with Christ, the promise of resurrection, and their partnership with one another. And that comment as I was reading through it just really went to what I expect and what I learned uh, out of this verse. And I was thinking about this part that he said where God is in control and will save those who belong to Christ. That's the entire teaching of Revelation in one sentence. God is in control and he will save those. And I love the three things he hit about the union with Christ, the promise of resurrection and their partnership with one another. What else do we have? What else do we have to cling to in this world? Our bodies are gonna fail us. People are gonna disappoint us from time to time. But that promise of resurrection that we read about so well put in 1 Corinthians 15 and the idea of this partnership with one another, the fellowship we have with Christ, we have an intimate spiritual connection to the creator of the universe, the most powerful being that we can't even imagine. We can't even imagine how powerful he is. But he's given just a little part of himself to us. We have his word revealed to us. And to me, that's beautiful. That's what we need to cling to. If you don't cling to the word of God and you don't cling to the idea of fellowship of believers and you don't cling to the idea of resurrection with Christ one day, then I really question whether or not you're a Christian because that is what the Bible teaches us to be doing. That is what we are required to be doing. And sometimes the world and, and, and the idea of church paints over that a little bit and we try to dress that up and we try to substitute ideas in for that. Those are the three things that are important. And I see those things taught in the Bible time and time again. Building on that, the second command that he gives them is to be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to all. That's the idea of being equitable, fair, and mild, and gentle. And then he talks about not being anxious. Anxiety is a big problem uh, with people. 
because they have a lot to be anxious about. I wonder sometimes what it would be like to be somewhere besides the United States and be somewhere where I didn't have a whole lot of material possessions to worry about. I just was going to eke out a living day by day and get my daily bread uh, and get my daily water uh, and just live life every day hoping that I wake up the next morning and not having a whole lot of things to be anxious over. Anxious can be good. Paul says he's anxious about Epaphroditus in chapter 2 of this book we're reading now about the fact that he was sick and he was worried about him and he was anxious about that. Uh, we see in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul was daily anxious about the churches of Christ, that he was wondering about them and concerned about them. But we see the bad anxiety. It's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't be anxious. You know, look at the sparrows, look at the birds of the field, look at the lilies and how God has taken care of them. Don't you know that God loves you more than them and he will take care of you? So how do we solve anxiety? Well, for some people it is a clinical issue and you have to solve it with medicine. But for most of us, it is something where we just need to turn to God in prayer. And that's what he asks us to do. He says, go to God in prayer. And he says, I'll give you something if you do that. I'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. And we quote that a lot. And those verses mean in the original language, I'm going to give you a peace that is superior, that is to be held high above all human thinking, all that people can deduce, all that people can, all the philosophers can put together and all the things that the human mind can piece together and we can come up with. I'm going to give you something that is held high above that it's beyond that. And we see that talked about, about the love of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. Let, let's just be frank with one another. None of us can imagine the love that Jesus Christ had for the people who beat him and spit on him and for the next at least 2,000 years we're going to mock his name and mock his word and spurn his sacrifice. We really cannot comprehend that love. We can't do it. I cannot comprehend putting my only child up for the sins of a bunch of people who could care less and for the billions that would reject him and for the ones that were spitting on him and making fun of him right then. But Jesus says from the cruel Roman cross, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. We can't comprehend the love of Christ. We cannot do that any more than we can comprehend the mind of God. We can experience the love of Christ and we can benefit from the love of Christ but to be able to say we understand it, well, you are a very arrogant individual indeed. He goes on to say that I'll guard your hearts and your minds. If you do, I'll give you that peace that passes our understanding that will guard your hearts and minds. And that word guard is a military term. Uh, and I think I haven't been in the military uh, because I probably would have been in the brig all the time. But I was not in the military. I don't know what exactly it's like to be in the military but this is a military term. It means guard it like you were guarding a post, like you were standing on sentry duty. And it's interesting that Paul uses this language because Philippi was originally founded uh, as a Roman military colony built on the ruins, of, you know, built on the past Greek city that was there. But it was first and foremost a Roman military colony. So the idea in the Philippian minds of a military uh, term would have been prevalent in their minds and it would have been understandable that we're going to guard this like the Romans guard the city or they guard the garrison that is there. And that idea of hearts and minds. You know, we think about the word heart 
Uh, and sometimes I hear the phrase, you know, in your heart of hearts, or we draw a little picture of a heart on our Valentine's card, and we talk about thinking about something in our hearts. This word would have meant something a whole lot deeper to the Greek audience that would have heard that. I want to read kind of some terms that I saw in defining uh, this Greek word. The Greek word is cardia, which we get cardiology from. It's a place of inner life, the soul, the place where God reveals himself to humans, the center of intellectual and spiritual life, home to the powers of spirit and reason and will, the seat of passion, of feeling, of instincts. We think about that as this big old brain we got up in our heads. We don't think about that in the heart. But God here mentions, or Paul mentions that the inspiration of God, not only this heart that would have meant something very deep to the audience, but also the minds, which is the center of intellectual thought. And so it's going to guard everything. This peace that I'm going to give you is going to guard your soul, and it's going to guard your thinking. And the most important part is that it's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way. Peace that's being talked about here to Christians in this letter to Philippi is you cannot attain it outside of Christ. You cannot attain it outside of Christ. It's a popular term in the New Testament. It's used 90 times in the New Testament, this word peace. Uh, in about every book except 1 John, oddly enough, it's not used uh, in 1 John. In Ephesians, Paul uses the term peace eight times in just six chapters. So we know this idea of peace, and I know we think about peace as not fighting. You know, if we're going to have peace with another country, it's a political thing. We're talking about a peace that God gives, a tranquility that comes to us spiritually. And I want to share with you kind of what I've learned. This is kind of what I was going to apply this to. God has been preparing me for what my family is going through right now for a long time. And we have been talking over the past couple of weeks about some of the, the restraints that are on women uh, in the church and the roles that they can take. And, and David's done an excellent job of that. But I don't want you, ladies, I want you to hear this well because you have taught me more than any other man has ever taught me in this world. And I don't mean in a formal sense or in a Bible class, so don't try to come up here and throw me off the stage. That's not what I meant. But if I had to rank the 20 people in my life who have been a spiritual influence on it, most of those would be ladies. Especially in the past two or three years as I've been here as a minister, I've been able to be there as ladies and men have laid loved ones to rest. And how they have handled that and how they have handled chronic illness and how they have handled bad news, how they have handled the process of losing loved ones has shown me that peace that surpasses all understanding. It has shown me that example. And you ladies here who I've been with and been around your loved ones when they were sick, and I want you to know that, and you know who you are. I can't name all of you up here. I don't admit someone. You know who you are. You've taught me so much. And I want that to be an encouragement to you. And... I remember probably the best Bible class that I've ever been in was about 10 or 12 years ago. One of our former elders, Tommy Whittle, taught the class. And I was the youngest guy in there probably by about 20 years. And some of those folks have gone on to be at home with their Lord. And I learned more in that class about going through life and dealing with things in life. I had just had my daughter. We were coming off the years of trying to have a baby for five years. Uh, the sadness of not hearing that heartbeat at that second doctor's appointment, of having a newborn baby that I had no idea what to do with uh, and still really have no idea what to do with. 
and I was brash and I was full of myself and I knew a lot of things like most 25 to 30 year old people think they do, but I learned a lot of life lessons from that. And I know that over the past few years, God has been preparing myself and my family to deal with what we're dealing with now. But I couldn't see that then, but I can see it now. And that's a wonderful thing. And in Titus chapter 2, it talks about older men and older women have a responsibility to teach younger men and younger women how to deal with life, how to just conduct yourselves and train them spiritually. And I want to give you an encouragement tonight that that works. It works very, very well. And you men, you've taught me a couple of things too. Most of you ladies have taught me quite a few things. I would give a hundred bucks if I could sit in the Tuesday morning ladies Bible class on Tuesdays. I've threatened very often to put a tape recorder in there uh, and record it because I know the caliber of teacher, I know the caliber of student that are in there and I could learn so much about life. But that's okay, God has restrained me from doing that and I'll just have to uh, hopefully maybe sneak a speaker in there or something like that where I can listen to it. But I wanna teach you something tonight don't just spend time with people of your same age and your same spiritual maturity because you cannot grow like that. You need to get engaged with people who have been through life experiences that you have not been through. Those of you that are youth, those of you that are college age, you think you're busy now and you think life is confusing now, it's going to get more confusing. And you need some of these folks out here. And I need you folks. We need your folks. The church needs you folks to get engaged with our younger people and teach them. They're not going to learn about marriage in a Bible class. They're not going to learn about marriage in a sermon. They're going to learn about marriage by spending time with those who've been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and have raised children and who have buried loved ones and have been sick and have faced illness, who have been fired, who've done all those things. That's what we're going to learn from. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I, that's what I want to go with you uh, as an encouragement tonight, to be busy about doing that. It is possible. It's not a whole lot of theology. You know, we tend to stick a lot of spiritual nicknames on things. We invent a lot of themes. We put out a lot of artwork. Uh, we put out a lot of emotional psycho babble every once in a while. Boil that all off and uncover the layers that we've put on top of it and know that it is fellowship with one another and learning about how God can bring you peace and how it's true and how it's real. When people walk in here off the street, that's what they're ultimately gonna see. I've been at this congregation for almost 19 years. It took three years of me going here before I decided to put on Christ in baptism in October of 2000. And the reason for that is that I kinda was just surrounding myself with those who were legalist in their mindset, who liked to complain about the song leader, the preacher, or the elders, or. Uh, coming from the Baptist faith. I heard people talk real negative about Baptist people all the time. And that was a real big turnoff to me. But eventually as I became involved in this congregation, as I began to come and see the ones who are doing the work and who are teaching the Bible classes and who are putting the rubber to the road on doing God's work, I began to see the true Christians. The fact of the matter is, in a Sunday morning of 1,100 people, not everybody there is a true Christian. But I began to see the ones who looked after the widows and who cared for the poor and, and who went to the hospitals and, and who spoke lovingly and didn't worry about a whole lot of rhetoric and legalism. They just wanted to serve Christ and they wanted to love their fellow man. And that's where I said, and they wanted to accurately talk about the Bible. And I've been studying the Bible my whole life. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Now, now I see this is the congregation where I want to be a part of. And I don't mean to brag about this congregation, but I really do. Uh, and I'm thankful for that. 
The people that come here are going to see that. And that's what they're going to know. After they get past all the pomp and circumstance and all the things that we do that are fun and exciting, it's going to wind up being you guys who give them encouragement so they can know they can turn to God and pray to Him uh, and find that peace. I want to quote, uh, or no, I don't want to quote, I want to read from Psalm chapter 34. And that's on page 497 in your Pew Bibles. And I just want to read a few verses from this psalm, and then I'm going to offer the Lord's invitation to those of you that are here tonight. I hope that tonight has been a blessing to you. And I think about these words here. This psalm was written by David at a time when he was on the run from Saul, uh, and he was in a foreign nation. He was under the king Abimelech. Uh, and if some of you guys remember the story from 1 Samuel, remember David acted like he was crazy. Uh, he was spitting all over himself and acting crazy to get them to think that he wasn't a threat to them. And this is the psalm that he writes to God. And I begin in chapter 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears hear their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. This encouraging passage, verse 20, has a connection to the Gospel of John when it talks about Jesus' bones not being broken. David is the line of Jesus Christ. And that ultimately is what we have to find, first and foremost, before you're going to get the benefits of fellowship in this congregation, in that closeness and that unity, you're going to have to be in Christ. And ultimately that's what this series is about. It's about joy and peace and happiness and contentment in Christ. Because you can pursue happiness through big houses and through big cars and through money or through work or even through friends or even through activities or athletics or whatever it may wind up being. But ultimately, all those things are going to fail you. They're going to fail you. And I want you to be encouraged that there is opportunity available. If you're a member of this congregation and you don't sense that, it's your fault. It's your fault because it's here and it exists and it exists in those who are close and who are involved. My wife hasn't been getting all the attention they got because she's got a really good looking husband. You know, that's part of it. But it's not all that. She's been a member of this congregation for 40 years since she was born. Many of the people here know my wife since she was born. And it's amazing all the prayers and all the visits we have from our Bible class and others. But the most interesting thing is the majority of visits we've had have been through from people whose children have been with my wife in the nursery. She helps out Cheryl Fisher on Wednesday nights in that. And because she took care of their babies, people want to take care of her. And I'm not bragging on my wife, but I'm just telling you that getting yourself engaged, if you're out on the fringe and you kind of just barely come in and this, that, and the other, it's your fault that you're not able to experience that. And you need to make a decision to change something in your life and get plugged into that. But you can't get access to any of that if you're outside of Christ. And tonight, I don't want any of you guys to leave here tonight not knowing something about that. Or if you've got questions about us talking about it, we want to talk to you about that. And we have some, a lot of people here a whole lot smarter than me can do a whole lot better job uh, at that. I'm not a great evangelist. Philip's a great evangelist. We don't want you to leave here not being in Christ. 
because Christ may come back tomorrow and you don't get a second chance. Just like he talks about the bridegroom and the ten virgins. When the five that were prepared went in, the door was shut. There's not a second chance like some false teachers say. Don't leave here tonight without that. Don't leave here tonight without that intimacy. If you want to know more about getting plugged in this congregation, we got a minister whose job is to get you involved in things. They pay somebody to do that. We have that opportunity here to do that. Everybody in this congregation loves the lost. And if you're here long enough, you'll know that they do that. This congregation uses the Lord's money to reach out to people. It's a concern and a care. Don't leave here tonight without being baptized into Christ or find out what that means. If you're here tonight and perhaps you've slid away from this fellowship or from the fellowship with Christ altogether, from the complete and corporal body of Christ worldwide, don't leave here tonight in that state either. The Bible says that state is worse than before. And I don't know what that means, but that's bad. Don't leave here tonight without that. We love you and we want to help you. If there's anything we can help you tonight, spiritually, physically, mentally,